0: MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to our innovative edition of Junior Don't The Spark. This is a four-part series about life on the Mississippi River as I experienced it. I hope you'll enjoy following me on my adventure. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Junior Doan's Spark. I'm Junior Doan. I'm thrilled you're joining us today. I'm speaking to you from the chart room of the America, one of the boats of the American cruise line. And we are on a voyage from New Orleans to St. Louis. And today we are going to voyage back in time and perhaps space or place. And uh, because my guest, Tom Hook, is a noted musician, historian, and storyteller, and he will combine these gifts into a discussion and a remembrance of the origins of American music. Tom, I'm really thrilled you're going to share these stories with us, but where would you begin? What would you like to begin with?
2: Well, I think I should probably begin with a little bit of information about what it is that I do in this role as a storyteller. Uh, about forty years ago, there was a young lady who started working on board the boats of the old Delta Queen Steamboat Company. She was uh, from Zanesville, Ohio, a young girl named Karen Malloy. Karen got a job working on the Delta Queen and just fell in love with it. And worked as a bartender and as a, a as a hostess and worked uh, on board those cruises for a great long time. And then, as The programming started to evolve on the vessel. Eventually the hostess position was going to be eliminated. Well, Karen was a very inquisitive person and a very gregarious person. And so she became close friends with all the old rivermen, the great old pilots and the captains on the boat, men who had started working on the river back in the early part of the 20th century, who each man was a library worth of information. And so she befriended these guys and they befriended her. And because she was a cute young blonde girl, they started calling her Toots, and so that became her name, Toots Malloy. So Toots, basically, when she discovered that her position was being eliminated, created a job for herself and sold it to the entertainment department on the company uh, as something that she could do that was unique, and that was this concept of a Riverlorian. She created the name. She said, I tell River lore. I'm a historian, I'm a Riverlorian. So, Everyone liked the idea, and she started doing it. And of course, it was a sensation because uh, as she went along, she started to compile these very detailed notes about not just the Mississippi, but the Ohio, the Cumberland, the Tennessee, the Atchafalaya, the Washita, the Red, all the rivers that the vessels worked on. So the whole concept of a River Lorian really started with her. And that name has almost become generic now, used by numbers of companies for an onboard vessel historian, and that's what I do. So my job here is to tell stories about this wonderful river that we're working on, but also to give more than just stories, to give facts, to answer questions, to try, in her words, make the river more of a friend and less of a stranger. That was one of her (laughs) by-phrases. And so that's what I do. So where do I start? Well, I start talking about the Mississippi River, which is the fourth longest river in the world. When you take it in combination with the Missouri, that whole river system, it is the largest river in this country. It drains two-thirds of the United States. Every drop of rain that falls between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains, from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to as far north in Canada as you can go, comes down the Mississippi River eventually and passes right past New Orleans. So it's a huge river, a huge watershed. The volume of the river is astounding. At Algiers Point, right where New Orleans is at the base of the river, the river flows at 600,000 cubic feet per second. That's an astounding amount of water passing through there. You can fill an Olympic swimming pool in three seconds. Um, and it flows about three miles an hour. So it's it's a huge river, and it it carries so much water, and consequently it carries so much commerce. All of the grains that are produced, the livestock, the manufacturing items that are made in the United States, so much of it comes through the port of New Orleans down the river. And it's always been that way. The Mississippi-Ohio River system has been the lifeblood of this country since this country was founded. So we can go back to the early, early days when the uh, Europeans first began to settle in North America. Of course, they settled in New England first and then down the eastern seaboard. And then they settled in Louisiana along the Gulf Coast. And it was mostly the Spanish and the French that were in the southern part of North America. In Louisiana, it was the French. So for a long time, the French controlled the port of New Orleans, the mouth of the Mississippi River. And the river was becoming more and more important as time went on and as the country began to grow and went beyond the Appalachian Mountains and settlements started to make its way west, the river got even more important, especially once people got into the Ohio Valley. Because the Ohio River, of course, was the first great river. It was the first valley that was settled, you know, once the people crossed the mountains. So you had the cities of Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and Louisville that were these very important early American cities. And their commerce and all the things that they would grow and create there, they would float down the river to New Orleans to ship to foreign markets. So how did they do that? Well, the first means of transportation on board the rivers was by flatboat. And a flatboat is really nothing more than a raft with a little cabin built on it, and then maybe put a pen on there for some livestock. And so the farmer would work all season, and he'd raise his crops, and he'd raise his cattle, and his hogs, and his chickens, and his sheep, or whatever it was he was doing. And then he'd build a big raft, and he'd put a cabin on there, and he'd put his pumpkins, and his hogs, and whatever he had. And then they would get on the raft, maybe someplace up around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they'd float down the Ohio down past the falls of the Ohio at Louisville, on down the river till they hit the Mississippi. Then they'd turn south and they'd go down as far as Natchez. Maybe they'd stop in Natchez or maybe they'd go all the way to New Orleans. And when they got there, they'd sell what was on the boat and then they'd sell the boat itself. Hmm. They'd sell the boat for lumber. It's amazing how many of the old homes in the poorer sections of New Orleans are made from lumber from flatboats. Bargeboard, we call it.
1: And who was going upstream
2: that they caught a lift with to go home? They walked back home home. They walked all the way home. That's what they did. They floated down the river to New Orleans, sold their goods, and then they'd walk home. They'd walk up the Mississippi River and they'd get to Natchez, and then they'd take a shortcut. They'd go up the Natchez Trace. And the Natchez Trace is an old Indian trail that goes from Natchez, Mississippi, to Nashville, Tennessee. So they'd take that shortcut along the Trace all the way to Nashville. And once they got to Nashville, they were in the Cumberland Valley. So they could then spread out, go across the Appalachians. They could go down the Cumberland and back up the Ohio, back to Pittsburgh where they were from or whatever. But they always went up the Trace. The Trace is an interesting story as well because it was the home of pirates and all kinds of nefarious bad men who would rob people on the Trace full of all sorts of dark and bloody deeds, but it was a major highway and it's funny because the foot traffic was so extensive along the trace that over the course of a century it wore down so in many places it's 12 or 15 feet (sighs) deep and you can still go and see the old trace. There's a beautiful national parkway that runs right alongside of it. So they did that for many years. Then they came up with an idea for an improvement and they said well we we can do better than this. They built the keel boat a keel boat is more like a conventional boat. Flat bottom, it's got sides on it, and they built walkways or galleries along each side of the boat. And they'd have a big crews of burly men on those flat boats. They'd put their supplies and their goods that they were going to sell at marketplace inside the keel boat, and they'd float down the river just like a flatboat. But when they got to New Orleans, they wouldn't break the boat up and sell it. They would push the boat back up river using long poles that they'd yes. shove in the mud at the bottom of the river and then walk along and push it. Teams of men doing it on either side, keelboat men, they'd pull the boat back up the river. Or they'd get on the bank and they might have a mule or an ox and they'd pull it with ropes up the river. They'd of course have to stay right along the bank where it was close because, you know, the river is huge and very deep. Or sometimes they would take a rope and then go upstream a long ways and find a big tree, put the rope around that, and then pull the rope using the tree as a fixed pivot point. Yes. Pull the boat upriver. They call that cordelling. So that was the keelboat man, and the keelboat men were legendary for being the roughest, toughest guys on the river. The most famous keelboat man is very much like the American character of Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill. They called him Mike Fink. Mike Fink was a real man. He lived in Natchez, Mississippi. And Mike Fink was the roughest, toughest keelboat man. Davy Crockett said that Mike Fink was half man, half horse, and half (laughs) alligator. Tough. Tough guy. And the keelboat man had a thing where if you were the toughest keelboat man on the river, you got to be known as the cock of the walk. And you could put a rooster feather in your hat and (laughs) wear it in your hat. So if you saw a guy walking down the street with a feather in his hat... You know he was somebody to be reckoned with. Mike Frank was an interesting guy. He uh, was—he uh, whipped all comers and finally he ended up, he was out I think in the mountains. And uh, he got into a, one of his favorite tricks was to get one of his buddies to stand back about 20 or 30 yards after they'd been drinking whiskey all day and put a cup on his head, and a uh, tin cup, and then Mike would take his pistol and he'd shoot the cup off the guy's head. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was doing that to a fellow named Carpenter, who was one of his friends. And um, Carpenter put the cup on his head, but Mike had had one too many whiskeys, and he missed the cup, and he hit Carpenter instead. And uh, so, unfortunately, all of uh, Carpenter's friends were there at the time. They didn't approve of that too much, and so that was the end of Mike Fink. But uh, that's a true story, and he was a real guy. That was the days of the keelboat man. But you can see that that was rough and tough work. Well, that all changed in 1811. Because in 1811, a man named Nicholas Roosevelt worked with um, the inventor Robert Fulton. Uh, And they took a steamboat, created a special steamboat, and he brought it down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, all the way to New Orleans in 1811. They called it the New Orleans. And that boat, of course, changed the history of this country because it was uh, the first steamboat to run all the way to New Orleans. It made the trip... In only about two and a half months, as opposed to months and months and months that it would take to get there on another boat, and then they turned around and went back. Went what back. did
1: they use for fuel? Wood. Wood.
2: Wood. Just stop along the bank and collect wood and burn it, and they used burned wood on the the boat. Now that boat, because you mentioned how did they use fuel? Well, one of the big uh, one of the big dangers of a boat yeah. like that was fire. So they, of course, caught fire, the boat did. They were attacked by Indians a couple of times. On the way down, they had a real difficult time getting through the falls of the Ohio at Louisville. And oddly enough, that was the year of Halley's Comet. So the Great Comet appeared in the sky, and everybody thought that it was the end of the world. And uh, oddly enough, that same year was the year of the Great New Madrid Earthquake. Now that earthquake is the largest earthquake in North American history. It was so strong, it happened in New Madrid, Missouri, which is in southeastern Missouri, right on the river. It was so strong that it rang church bells in Philadelphia. It was felt all across the United States. You could feel it in Washington, DC. They think it was about a nine on the Richter scale. Well, now there wasn't very much in the Mississippi Valley at that time, so there was no real major loss of life. But of course, New Madrid was destroyed. You know, the famous story is the New Orleans was on the river when the earthquake struck, and they were tied off to an island. And when they woke up in the morning, the rope was pointing directly down in the river, and the entire island had disappeared. So they hurried out and cut the rope before they yeah. got sucked down. They say that the Mississippi River changed its course, of course, many places, took out whole islands and hills and towns and forests, and not only that, it actually ran backwards for three days from the epicenter. So it was an enormous event, but they survived that. They made it all the way to New Orleans by January of 1812. Of course, that changed the history of this country. That steamboat did. So steamboats really caught on then. Uh, by the 1840s, which was really the beginning of the great steamboat era, there were lots of steamboats running on the river once people realized what they could do and the money that could be made. And as the steamboat trade grew, then so did the towns along the river. Got even more and more Like important.
1: the railroads later on. Just exactly
2: yeah. like the railroads did later on. So there was those three big innovations that really started river travel. And the middle 19th century was the golden time. For river boating, Well, that all really worked up until the Civil War. And then at the, after the Civil War, so much railroad was built during the war that people began to realize that they could place more confidence in railroads than on boats, and the steamboat trade started to drop off as a trade for carrying supplies. So they started to make more opulent boats, more beautiful floating palaces that people would go and ride on you know, in luxury and in style. Another boat that I'd like to talk about before we talk about the post-bellum steamboats is a boat called the Yellowstone that was built in 1832 by John Jacob Astor. Now in the 1830s the fur trade was still huge, you know, yeah. in North America and Astor was one of America's first multimillionaires and he made it all in furs. So, of course, the fur trade, the trapping was being done in the Rocky Mountains in Canada, and Astor knew that it was hard to get those furs all the way from the Rocky Mountains to the nearest port on the river, which would be St. Louis on the Missouri River. So he designed a boat that would run up the Missouri River, a steamboat, but it had to be a special boat because the Missouri River is much faster than the Mm. Mississippi River. It's shallow and it's got a very fast current, and it's narrow. It's treacherous. So he built a special boat that could do that, and he called it the Yellowstone. And that boat was intended to run all the way up the Missouri River to Fort Union at the mouth of the Yellowstone River. So they built the Yellowstone, and they made several trips up the Missouri River. And, of course, the Europeans were really infatuated with the American West. and. Um, one of his first trips i think it was his second trip the second year they went up there they carried a bavarian prince prince maximilian went with them and they brought some of the great naturalists and uh, painters of the era Uh, carl bodmer and george catlin went along as expedition painters like you take along an expedition photographer well they brought these guys along to paint and they painted fabulous watercolors of the landscape and the animals the herds of buffalo that stretched all the way across the horizon so the yellowstone made five trips up and down and then it was bought by some investors in new orleans and so they decided then um in the off season they'd take the boat to texas so they went down to texas and they started running on the gulf between new orleans and galvez town oh yes okay in the cotton trade well in 1836 texas declared its independence from Mexico. And as you know, uh, Sam Houston was leading the Texan army and the Mexican army was led by Santa Ana. Well, of course, Santa Ana brought his army north and he cornered the Texans at the Alamo in San Antonio and we know what happened there. Well, now, Sam Houston knew that Santa Ana was not aware that there was a steamboat in the area. So what he did was Santa Ana went down by the San Jacinto and he just kind of went into Siesta and he didn't really worry about the Texans. And what Houston did was he took what was left of his army and he got the Yellowstone and they used the Yellowstone, they ferried the entire Texan army across the Brazos River, all their artillery, and they were able to sneak up on Santa Ana because Santa Ana didn't think that they could get across the river. He didn't know about the boat. And they were able to then surprise the Mexicans. They captured the entire army. They captured Santa Ana and Texas, won its independence, largely in part to this little steamboat that had already made history by going to the Rocky Mountains for the first time, the Yellowstone. And if you go to the Alamo, there's a bell sitting inside the Alamo, a ship's bell, that is the bell off of the Yellowstone that is at the Alamo.
1: Oh, I'm glad you shared that. I wasn't aware of that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that
2: interesting? You know, that so much of this is connected, these stories that you, how could this one boat be here and then do that? What's You know, it's just the wonderful th- thing about history. It's got all these threads, and they all interrelate, and they all tie together. So there's so many interesting stories in American history. You know, and unfortunately, part of, uh, I think, one of the challenges is, is when you teach people, or children have to learn things in school. There's so much curriculum they've got to learn and you can't teach them everything so they get bullet points, they memorize dates, and then you move on to the next thing. You don't really get to the real essence of history, which is the content. It's the humane part of history to help you understand they were just people too. What happened to the steamboat era? What caused it to change? It was the railroads. The railroads were the death of the steamboats. The steamboats then, after the war, of course, the Civil War was was uh, devastating to the South. It destroyed the infrastructure in the South. Uh, the railroads, of course, were destroyed. Uh, the telegraph system was destroyed. The cities were destroyed. Um, so there was all of that to be rebuilt. And then, like I said, the railroads had been really developed in the North, and so people started shipping freight by rail because, even though it was a little less efficient, it was faster. And uh, then the, so the boats relied on the passenger trade. And so the big, big river boats, the real floating palaces, came along in the 1870s and the 1880s. And that's the classic steamboat. When you see the picture in Courier and Ives of the big yeah, white nice. boat that looks like a wedding cake with the smokestacks yeah. and the giant paddle wheel, that's 1880s, 1890s steamboats. And of course, when you think about river boats, you think about Samuel Clemens. You think about Mark yeah, Twain. Twain. Now there's an interesting story about Twain that I love to tell. Of course, Twain was born in the 1840s, and Hannibal loved the river. And of course, to him, the best thing a boy could ever aspire to be was a riverboat captain, because, in his words, a steamboat captain was the most independent, unfettered spirit on the planet. He was the king, and he wanted to be. He sure. wanted to be a, a riverboat captain. And that's what he did. He apprenticed with a man named Horace Bixby, and he learned to be a a riverboat pilot. So he tells a story in Life on the Mississippi that I I find interesting and poignant, but it's also one of those stories like, wow, how come I didn't learn this in school? He had a brother named Henry, a younger brother. And uh, Henry and Sam were both working on a boat, um, working for a man named uh, Brown. Brown was the captain, or not the captain, Brown was the pilot, and Sam was his cub, his apprentice. Henry was what they called the mud clerk. He was just the second clerk. He was accounting on the boat. And um, so the problem with Brown was he was really hard of hearing, and he was sort of a liar. So they got into a situation where um, Henry tells Brown that they need to make a landing at a certain plantation to pick up some cotton or something. And, uh, well, the boat just sails on past the landing. So the master of the vessel, Kleinfelter, who owned the boat, came in and wanted to know what was going on. Well, Brown said, well, that's, I've never heard about this. And Henry said, well, I, I told you to make the landing. Well, Brown called Henry a liar and he took out after him with a 10-pound chunk of coal. He was going to brain him with a chunk of coal. Well, about this point in time, Sam steps in and he hits Brown pretty hard with a wooden stool. <laughs> and he figures that, Well, since his cub piloting days were probably over, he took the opportunity to go ahead and pound him, in his words, considerable with his (laughs) fists. Well, the whole deal was Brown refused to work with Sam. Sam lost his berth as a cub pilot, so Captain Kleinfelder kind of knew what was going on, so he interceded, and he got uh, Sam a berth on another boat. Now, the boat that Henry and Sam were working on was called the Pennsylvania. That boat left New Orleans soon after that. And then Brown followed, I mean, sorry, Sam followed a couple of days later on a boat called the A.T. Lacey. And when they got to Greenville, they got the word that the Pennsylvania had exploded north of Greenville, Mississippi. Steamboat explosions were very common. And um, before they had left, Henry and Sam had talked about it, and they decided that if they were ever in some sort of a disaster, they would do the manly thing and stand by the boat, help people in time of trouble, and. That's what they did. Well, apparently, when the boat blew up, Henry was blown out of, the, out of, the, out of the, the boat. The explosion blew him into safety, but he thought about what they talked about and he went back to help other people, and his subsequent injuries were to prove fatal. He lingered for six days and he died from, from skulls. Well, Sam Clemens was devastated by that. He felt responsible. He said that if he hadn't have got in that fight with Brown, he would have been there to protect his younger brother. He could have helped Henry. And he never really quite got over that. And it stuck with him for the rest of his life. And then, of course, he went on. He left the river eventually. The Civil War came along. He joined the uh, Confederate um, militia there in his hometown. And that lasted for a couple of days. And then um, <laughs> he didn't take to soldiering very much. Uh, yeah. And he, so he took his brother, and he Orion. His brother was uh, elected as the secretary to the territory of Nevada. So then Sam left, he went to Nevada, he started working as a silver miner, and he started writing stories. He wrote a song about the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County. And then of course from the jumping frog, he became a national celebrity and then he became the great writer that we know. Where does he get his name from? Well, it's very simple. In the old days, the boats didn't have sonar. So to tell the depth of the river, You would take a a man and stand on the front of the boat, they called him the leadsman, and he would put a piece of lead on a rope, and every six feet there was a knot in the rope. Yes. Throw the rope in the river, and then you'd pull it out and see where the water was. Well, you needed to have 12 feet of water because most of those boats, like the boat we're on, draws about nine feet, eight or nine feet, seven feet. So you wanted to have two marks. Well, one fathom is mark one. Two Fathoms is Mark II, or in 19th century parlance, Mark Twain.
1: Oh, that's so That's
2: what a river man wants to hear, Mark Twain. So Sam Clements took the name Mark Twain from the Ledsman's call because he'd stand out there and he'd yell to Mark, By the Mark III! Mark Twain! Mark Twain is what she wanted to hear
1: so thank you tom uh, i'm i 'm going to close out this session even though I just really don 't want to do this, so i 'm going to close it out and then we 're going to continue again if our if we have the ability to do things but well, we 've learned a great deal from from Tom, and I just want to touch on a couple of highlights. One is love of place, love of century that emphasize the high side of human living dignity, good folks, loyal husband, good worker. Um, the celebration of how technology can really be uh, used good and bad, uh, depending on the people, but even turn the tide in the Mexican-American War by using a steamboat for something they hadn't anticipated, but turned out to be terribly useful. So when you go about your life, see if you can have some complexity. See if you can have something that makes you good folk, Something you strive to learn that has respect and admiration for other people. And remember, do something kind for someone you know and someone you don't know today and tomorrow and thereafter. It will make a difference. And thank you again for tuning in. We'll see you the very next time. Thank you, Tom.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. Although we're going to continue. <laughs> to be continued. To contact Junia, send her an email at spark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones the Spark. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. MCTV.